0: What's up, y'all?
1: Brad, you look like you have no heat in your house.
0: We got we got heat. I'm in like the hold on, my camera angle's not good. Can you see my lion's hat? That's all that matters. <laughs> um we um no, the little recording studio is in the garage and it's cold out, so oh. I was also just outside. But um I um I think I might have made a mistake this morning. I went to the well in the gym and I don't know if I can come back from the well anymore like i feel sick from the workout my ears are like still popping it's it's a mess
2: welcome to old age man yeah you know what i think it is is i think it was the uh it's the dan campbell stuff Man, i know the, you're gonna see yeah, that 100 yeah it's the, <laughs> the shock and awe of detroit and then getting fired up from dan campbell and then just overloading your body, man. You should have, this is today should have been like a take it easy day after all that excitement. Oh man, what a game. Um, I was just loving every moment of
0: it. 32 years. Last time the lions won a playoff game. I was the same age as my son who I was watching it with last night. He's in kindergarten. So it was pretty remarkable. It's, it's the culture that Dan Campbell, their head coach has built. Um, And I think that he is just such a phenomenal, authentic leader that is super smart and intelligent and knows football and and has built a coaching staff of guys that have a lot of football intelligence, but he just cares so much about the game and about his team and about trying to do it the right way. After the game, they uh, they went into the locker room, and uh, Dan Campbell, the head coach, Brad Holmes, the general manager, and Jared Goff, the quarterback, they all gave these short speeches. Uh, the entirety of it was just a little bit over two minutes, and they said the word love seven times, and they meant it. Uh, and to me, that's like the peak of the mountaintop, and it is a real contrast, I think, with Another big coaching story in the NFL, which is Bill Belichick, longtime coach of the Patriots, six Super Bowls, him quote-unquote retiring, but it seems ostensibly that he was nudged out and um, a wildly successful coach in the NFL. I don't think anyone's won more Super Bowls than Bill Belichick. Um, He was more of an authoritarian coach that would belittle other coaches on his staff and players. And it was quite a crazy contrast to see Bill Belichick retire and the Patriots just really not be a great football organization right now on the one hand, and then the Detroit Lions coming back from the dead over the last 32 years with a culture that is really built on caring, having fun, and love.
2: You know, I I think what we're getting at is uh, a bigger trend in uh, coaching and sport, actually. Um... Which is this kind of old school model, Bill Belichick, like authoritarian, I'm going to have control and you're going to do it my way. And if you just follow this, we're going to win because, you know, whatever. We do things and make people tough. Um, that That's kind of fading a little bit. And I think that, you know, tying this to another story, which we'll get to, is uh, Pete Carroll also... I mean, was kind of forced out as well for the Seahawks, but he'd been there for, gosh, I think, you know, 14 years or something like that. But um, Pete Carroll was kind of the Dan Campbell, you know, 1.0 to a degree, like love, joy, fun, engagement. You're seeing other coaches in the NFL, like uh, Mike McDaniel, who uh, has had a lot of success for the Miami Dolphins, talk about deliberate joy. You're seeing other coaches in other sports, NBA, Steve Kerr, the NHL, uh, Rod Brendamore, who are, are, are kind of embracing this kind of, uh, we'll call it new school, you know, let's bring some fun and joy back. Not, you know, making it easy, still doing hard things and creating toughness and all that stuff, but really kind of having a more humanistic side to, to coaching and it, it's interesting timing because, you know, as we've alluded to, we had Pete Carroll essentially retire. Nick Saban, another giant of the generation of coaches, you know, won way, you know, however many championships at Alabama, one at LSU as well, retire. But it's like this this transition of some of the giants of the last era into this kind of new school model that is, I think, taking some of the things that even Belichick did well and Sabin did well and Carol did well um, and, and bringing it into this new mold.
1: Yeah. And I think the thing to highlight here for people who are listening who may not be into football is this is, we care less about the football and more about using this as a way to discuss different approaches to excellence and ways to think about creating a culture of sustainable excellence. One thing I want to say as a, as a somewhat objective observer, as not a Lions fan, and I'm by, and by no means a Patriots apologist, I grew up a Jets fan, so I know a lot about losing and I know a lot about hating the Patriots, is that we can't possibly equate Dan Campbell with Bill Belichick right now. We might say that he's building a a, a different culture and it seems to be resonating and working at this current moment, but Belichick won six titles and Dan Campbell has won one wild card game. So I just want to say that for anybody who's listening, who might, who might be from Boston or might be a little bit more objective, who's hearing this and going, are we really saying that Dan Campbell is, is in his way of approaching winning is better than Belichick's. So I just want to say that first. Yes. Steve. So I,
2: yeah, I got this question all the time. Whenever I talked about do hard things, because I railed on Bobby Knight, who obviously took the authoritarian to another level from, from uh, Bill Belichick. Um, But the counter example is, again, we use Pete Carroll, but you could also look at perhaps the, or most likely the greatest college basketball coach of all time, John Wooden, who was posed as, again, similar to Dan Campbell, similar to Pete Carroll, like this kind of coaching responsiveness, love, joy, care, whatever we want to wrap it around and had, just as much or more success than than bill belichick and i think the answer to this is pretty simple although it's complicated is that the whole sum of the individual brings about the success and if we look at bill belichick again i'm not a football expert but if we look at what he does it seems like throughout most of his career he was a genius at talent identification he got Tom Brady in the sixth round or whatever, and you know, best quarterback in history. He has several other other success stories like that. Wes Welkers, others who had great success who were kind of underlooked. And he was, you know, for a long time, like a genius at creating schemes for uh, his teams on offense and defense that, you know, were ahead of everybody else. So those things probably. Made him great. No different than Bobby Knight won some national championships and a whole hell of a lot of games. And if you talk to people who, uh, you know, actually know something about basketball and like me, they'll say, oh, on X's and O's, Bobby Knight, genius, right? Maybe coaching, like how to shoot and how to do the defense. Great. His personality that came with it probably didn't help his coaching. and In fact, almost certainly hindered it. And if he was still coaching today, definitely would have hindered it. And I think we've seen that in the Belichick era where some of his assistants, many of his assistants having gone on to coach in the NFL, no one's had that much success. And I think a lot of times that happens because they copy the attitude of Bill Belichick, the kind of grumpy authoritarian who doesn't want to talk to the media and doesn't want his players to do anything except what he says. They've copied that but have missed on some of the things that had, that made him great. And I think that when we have these conversations, that's what we have to look at holistically is there's no denying the impact and the success of bill Belichick and the fact that he can coach. But I think we have to take it like the whole thing and realize that, that some of the stuff that he's doing works well, others don't. I like that you use the word holistic because it's also
1: case by case. And like certain players are gonna respond to certain systems. I think you see that with like Brady seemed to respond. I mean Brady, who knows? He's one. Of, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. So who knows how much of this is raw talent? And he could have done it with other coaches. But he seemed to respond to Belichick's particular brand of do your job. You know, come in, be very detail oriented. Um, I think you see that with like Patrick Mahomes responds to Andy Reid's sort of free flowing. You know, have fun and uh, play free sort of cu- more curious of more of a Pete Carroll type. Um, but it all like, it is holistic. And so to say like one thing is better than the other, um, it's, it's really hard to make that sort of absolute claim. Another person who jumps out to me here is, uh, Eric Spolstra, who at the Miami heat has built a very specific culture. And I would, I would say that it's not, it's definitely not the, it, I think it is founded around love. Um, But it's not the totally the Pete Carroll thing or even the Steve Kerr at the Warriors thing. It's not like total joy. I've read some stories about Eric Spilcher where his players talk about the ways in which he gets the best out of them. And it is a little bit domineering is too strong, but it is controlling in a way where he sort of is like, you can do more, you can do more. But again, it just goes to like different players respond to different systems and different coaching styles. And so I think zooming out and taking that, as you said, holistic view is an important, important thing to remember here
0: here's what I think about Spolstra um, because I've, I've looked into how he coaches in the Miami heat fairly extensively. And what I would say is that he is a hard ass and can be a disciplinarian, but he's also built a very, very large container of love in what researchers would call psychological safety that allows him to do that. So the players know that they are all in it together and that Spolster cares deeply about them and wants nothing more than to set them up for success. And because they know that and they really feel it, that allows him to, at times, be more of an authoritarian coach because it's in this greater circle of love. Whereas someone like Bill Belichick was known for he just like cut players, fire guys on two days' notice, middle of the season, because in that moment, it might not lead to the next win. And that is not psychological safety. That's the opposite. That's like a a culture of, of fear. And then the other thing that I'll say, coming back to my main man, Dan Campbell, is I was thinking about this before we started recording. And I think what Dan Campbell is doing, well, I think he's doing two things really well. The first is I think he's coaching an NFL football team like they're a high school football team. And Steve and I have talked about this a lot. High school sport is like the peak of purity in sport. Like, there, no one's getting name and likeness money. There aren't backroom deals. People are doing it because they love it. No one gets paid that much to coach. Sure, in, in big states, and big sports, there's all kinds of status and politics involved in coaching, but it, it still is a pretty pure game, and people are doing it because they love the game, and that's something that Dan Campbell's old teammates say about him, is that Dan Campbell would have played for free. He just loves football. I think the reason that this works is because he also acknowledges that it's not high school. So in that same speech I mentioned, just as important as Dan Campbell dropping love bombs, he said, and I'm going to quote, listen guys, I know this can be a shitty business, a real shitty business. We do our best, and dude, I think we're doing all right. So he acknowledges like that it is a business, and it's a tough business, and hard decisions are made. Um, And it's like that honesty. And the research shows that the way that you build psychological safety as a leader is through caring and attention and honesty. And man, if Campbell hasn't done that for an NFL football team, then I don't know who has.
2: You know, I think what we're getting at, and this might be the most important point, is that each person we're talking about, whether Dan Campbell, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, if we bring Nick Saban in there, Eric Spolstra is... They are being authentic to themselves and how they do things. I have no doubt that Bill Belichick is how he presents himself. And some of that is like, yeah, this business sucks. And like, I'm going to be ruthless. But you know that going in. And you know that's kind of who he is and how he operates. But if you accept that, you're more than likely, or based on history for a long time, more likely to get a shot at doing the thing that you signed up to want to do, which is win the Super Bowl and the championship. So you kind of take some of it. So that is number one is I think they're authentic. The other part coming back to the Spolstra is I would argue that the parenting research is perfect for describing what we're going after here. And that Spolstra is not authoritarian coach. He's the close cousin authoritative. And if you look at the parenting research, what it does is it Plots demandingness versus responsiveness. So demanding this, if we have high demandingness, we're kind of like that coach who, you know, my way or the highway takes no shit, right? If you only have demandingness and you do not have any responsiveness, that's that authoritarian and it tends to fail at all levels, right? To some degree. Short term, it can sometimes work, but over the long term. Uh, tends to fail. But that authoritative is when you still have that high demandingness, but you couple that with the high level of responsiveness, which is essentially care, love. Like I see you as a human being. I care about you as a human being. I'm trying to help you get better in this this really demanding task that we face. And I think that what what we find when we're talking about most of the successful coaches we're, we're kind of wrapping our head around as, as Clay put, said, they fall somewhere, you know, different on that spectrum. But I'd, I'd argue that they all have some sort of high level of demandingness and responsiveness in their own way. That demandingness for some, like a Pete Carroll, might not be like, hey, I'm going to get in your face. But it is setting the high expectation of like, we're going to compete, man. Because he was he was Pete Carroll is famous for having very competitive practices. Like we're going to compete. That's a different way of getting at that demandingness, but it still has that there. So I think the the coupling of those two is where, where the magic happens if the individual leader or coach is also authentic and, and true to himself.
1: Jim Harbaugh jumps out to me as another one that's interesting here because he strikes me as somebody who is very authentic i don't that i know that authenticity rubs people the wrong way sometimes it's a little bit corny and dorky um in my opinion but it seems to obviously it works for him in michigan he just won a national championship i think people often say to go back to exactly what you were talking about brad with you dan campbell saying this is a business i think people say jim harbaugh didn't work in the nfl because he took sort of too much of a call it a college approach i actually don't know if that's true because he led the 49ers to the super bowl like it did work until it just didn't work but again i think he's another guy who embodies the idea of being authentic and and people are either going to buy into it or they're not going to buy into it but he's not changing who he is i don't think for anyone else and i think players some players do respond to that
2: i think one of the things that that really matters here is um is not just authenticity of the, the coach, but it's like clarity on knowing what you bring to the table. And you're not trying to like bring something that you don't. And I think this is where Jim Harbaugh does it really well. I mean, I've been fortunate to be a, around a lot of good coaches, especially in the track world. And what I always noticed is the good coaches knew the thing that was the difference maker for them. Like whenever I spent time around uh, Tom Tellez, who coached Carl Lewis, Leroy Burrell, all these famous sprinters, like he knew the difference maker for him was not, he was not a fire him up coach. He was not, I'm going to instill all this confidence. He was like, I am going to get your running mechanics so sound that like you are going to execute this hundred meters and have it just ingrained where this is, you're going to do, you're going to succeed. And you just trust, like he was the genius on mechanics, biomechanics. So you just trust him, right? What I found with coaches who, again, uh, maybe didn't have as much success is they try and fake their way into something, and the athletes always could tell, right? If you weren't the guy who knew the ins and outs of the biomechanics or the training design in track and field, and you started to try and fake it with your athletes, They knew they were like, oh, no, this they're just they're just using big words. They don't even actually have a plan to help us improve in this area. They're just copying something they've heard. Or if you tried to fake your way into the like, I'm going to fire you up and be like this energetic person when you're not like athletes knew and kind of smelled through that BS and didn't respond to it. So I think a large part of this is like the clarity of understanding who you are Something else that I think makes Dan
0: Campbell um, really relatable to the players is that he played in the NFL for quite a long time, and um, he was a coach's player. He just absolutely loved the sport, and he was in the trenches, Um, and I think a lot of the guys look up to him because they know when he says, hey, we have to put pads on in practice, even though... It's the last thing you guys want to do, but tackling and pursuit is a big part of the game, and I care about you. So we're gonna do this right, and we're gonna do it in a way where we take every precaution to make sure no one gets hurt in practice. I had a couple of you look at me like, what the why are we going live? I got it, here's what I need, man. I need you to trust me. I I swear to God, I'm not a lunatic.
2: I swear to you. And if I absolutely knew we could get to where we need to get without
0: ever putting pads on, I'd do it, I swear to you. But also for us as a team to get better. Defensively, what is the essence of what we do, man? What are the two things? Pursuit and tackle, pursuit and tackle. Man, if you don't work on tackling, if we don't work on run after catch, making a move, Man, what are we doing, man? Then we finally get to week eight and we come to life because we got enough reps. That's what I'm doing, I swear, man. Man, I got a plan, I swear to you. All I think about is you guys. That's all I think about, man. That's all I think about is you guys and how I set you up for the best possible, the best possible advantage I can give you to have a season, I swear to you, man. I just need you to trust me, that's all. I think another really good example of a coach who is relatively new in her career that is developing a lot of rapport with athletes based on having skin in the game is Shalane Flanagan, uh, who's a good friend of the Growth Equation, won the New York City Marathon, um, one of the top three U.S. distance marathoners on the women's side of all time. uh, Recently, took a collegiate coaching job at University of Oregon, and. When she coaches, she's coaching from an intellectual side of someone that has studied the sport of running, but she's also coaching from a place of having been in those workouts and having run under the lights and having competed at the highest level. And that just gets you instant credibility. And I don't know Shalane's coaching style well enough to know, like, and I don't even know running well enough to know the quote unquote X's and O's, but I think that's like another domain of competence is like, have you been there before? And if you've been there before, can you lean into that to really draw uh good trust in psychological safety with your athletes? And I can't judge Shalane as an X and O's coach, but just seeing her from afar interact with these girls that she's coaching. It's really clear that They look up to her, not only as a coach, but as an athlete.
2: You know, speaking of track and field and skin in the game, one of my favorite coaching moments when I was coaching track at the university of Houston was actually fellow coach, uh, Debbie Ferguson McKenzie it was like a, a legend in the sprinting world because for Bahamas, she was one of the Bahamas golden girls of, uh, winning the, the four by 100 meter relay. But she went to the 96, the 2000, the 2004 and 2008 Olympics. And then I think this was like 2016, 2017 era. She was coaching in her 40s and lines up at the University of Houston in a 100 meter heat against the college girls that she was coaching and dusted them like i don't remember what it was but maybe like 115 116 11, in the 100 at 40 something it just dusted them and what it was it was it was this moment of like almost like hey don't forget like i still do this i can still do this i know what it feels i know how to get you to this place one of the things that I always see and look for in, in young coaches is like, do they know that you know what it feels like to be them and to go through what they they go through at some level. And that gets back to that like humanistic quality that we're we're talking so much about and, and kind of being who you are, which is a human. And if you do that, good things follow. I think a big takeaway in sport, but also outside of sport,
0: is there are these various domains for leading so what comes to mind for me is technical competence motivation personnel management and then like longer term strategy and creativity and i think it's really important to know to steve's point where you shine and then don't try to fake it in the other places and then hire for the other places so dan campbell is a motivation personnel guy that has been in the trenches and has played the game. And don't get me wrong, he knows football very well, but you watch the documentary Hard Knocks on how the Lions built their coaching staff, and he went and he hired for X's and O's. That's very different than an X's and O's coach that might not be a big-time motivator, might even be an introvert and they got to go hire the crazy strength and conditioning coach that's going to get everyone fired up that might not know a thing about X's or O's. And I think it's really just knowing like where is your special sauce and then how can you make sure that you build a staff that hits those other things so you don't have to try to pretend to be the other things.
2: I, I mean, I think that's it. And I think if you look around at people who have not succeeded, it's the copy, Right. Yeah. How how many people to bring in? We didn't talk a lot about him, but Nick Saban, like what is he famous for? Like the process. But if you talk to people who worked with and around Nick Saban, like he lived and breathed the process. Like the the 24 hour rule that Brad and I have, have written about and talked about of like joy your success or failures for you know for 24 hours and move on. Like Nick Saban was like a, I don't know, a, a five minute rule. Like I talked to a good friend who worked with them and, you know, the moment after a national championship, it's like, okay, let's get to recruiting. Like who, who are recruits? Like right after the game, you know, he's the process guy, not everyone, everyone can kind of preach process, but not everyone is going to be like that's that exact in that, like, and I think that's where so much of it is learning what you bring to the table. And then, filling those gaps around you as Brad said to make sure that like they're covered elsewhere and I think this you know we're part of the reason we're talking about this is we love sports but it's the same with everything else it's the same with leading a company being a CEO you know being a principal whatever leadership role you have I mean I think the same uh, principles apply in his press conference uh,
0: his final press conference Pete Carroll said, And I'm going to paraphrase that the number one thing, the number one piece of advice he has for new coaches is to figure out who you are and be that. And that really summarizes the conversation that we just had, is figure out who you are and be that. So yeah, now Dan Campbell's in the news and I'm hyping it up like everyone else. You're going to get a bunch of people that are not wired like Dan Campbell, that don't wake up and have two venti coffees with double shots of espresso in each. And they're going to be yelling and hemming and hawing and this and that and love and this and that. But if it's not real, it's not going to work. So what makes Dan Campbell special isn't necessarily that, it's that he knows That's who he is, and then he takes it all the way. Reminds me of this other quote that I heard um, from Carl Richards, uh, who, he's a finance writer. Uh, He did all those sketches for the New York Times. Really, really thoughtful guy. And we were talking about, I forgot which one, but one of the growth equation books. Might have been groundedness. And he said that it reminds him of this quote, which is, be yourself and go all the way. And that's what these guys do really good. They figure out who they are and then they take it all the way.
2: And, and I just, I think that's a hundred percent correct. And I love that Pete Carroll quote. If you haven't watched that press conference, you really should stop listening to us and just go watch it, but come back to us, please. Um, the only thing I'd add as experience in coaching is the athletes will know when you're faking it. Like they smell the bullshit a hundred percent. That's we true in think. a corporate environment too. It's not just yeah. athletes. I mean, I, I, multiple, yeah, so. that's what I mean is like so, uh, but so many leaders, so many coaches, I've seen it so many times, like think they're getting away with it, think that, you know, their speech, their thing or whatever, their act, people don't know, they know. And then that's kind of the, the the downside or the bad side of some of these poor cultures or environments is you get people up top faking it and not being who they are. And, you know, people lose respect and people stop working as hard and culture goes south. You stop winning games. So don't try and fake it, man. Be who you are. The
1: only one thing I would add is that I do feel like, and you guys can tell me if you disagree that luck plays a big role as well. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who did figure out who they are and they are being that, and they're still struggling. Right.
2: You know, this is another conversation, but we tend to talk about coaches and hype them up. And as a coach, like love it matters, but I'm just reminded of something like good friend and coach of a world champion, Danny Mackey told me once, which is he was talking about this athlete who had coached a world championship. And he said, you know what? You know, this coach coached him to another world championship. And before that, another coach coached him to a world championship, like final. It's not, it's not us, it's the athlete. And a lot of it is, are you lucky enough to get really good athletes? And and yes, there's recruiting and signing and all that stuff. But, but so much luck plays into it. I'm going to bring in the research here. I think of um, work that shows
0: the quality-quantity debate for innovation in breakthroughs. And what is really pretty clear across uh, a fair amount of studies in this space is that you have to have a certain level of quality. Once you achieve that level of quality, even the biggest predictor of success is quantity. So it's like, you have to be good enough where if you catch a lucky break, you're going to make use of it. But then you just want to do quantity, put things out there. It's kind of like book writing. Like there is so much luck in a book that takes off, but a bad book is not going to take off. But just because you write a good book doesn't mean it's going to take off. You got to write a good book and get lucky. So what's the route to doing this? You write a lot of good books. And I think the lesson there is, um, I come to think of it, is, and this isn't my line. I've heard this many times: is increasing your surface area of luck. So, you know, if you're going to get lucky, and you just got a little surface area because you only tried this one thing, well, then the probability is against you. But if you take a hundred shots, and they're all good enough from a quality standpoint, well, then you still might not get lucky, but at least you give yourself a better chance. And I think with these coaches, a big part of it is just staying in the game and staying to your principles and then not letting perfectionism get in the way. Um, And obviously, at the highest, highest level, yeah, luck plays a huge role. So I think that you could take a lot of shots and become a really good collegiate coach, maybe D2, D3, or a state champion high school program coach, if you care deeply. But then getting above that, a lot of that is just luck. Before we transition topics, just a quick plug for the East Asheville Hawks, currently 3-0, 6U basketball program, just went into Asheville Catholic, the well-funded private school, a 28-6 to win. Um, we got our kids playing great as a team. Uh, we've got a, a a girl on the team who's a little bit scared to play, getting into games, we got a boy on the team who for two weeks didn't know which direction he was going, moving in the right direction. Um, so we're building a culture of love here in the Asheville 6U basketball program. Love
1: it. What did you t- I know you just listened to JJ Redick, uh, Pablo Torre podcast. We talked about coaching. I can't remember if it's nine-year-olds or ninth graders. I think nine-year-olds, but I'm curious what, you, what coaching lesson you took from that, if anything. I, I love that podcast. So the first thing that I
0: took is that JJ Raddick would fit right in with the growth equation because he um, he's just like a kindred spirit, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, the second thing that I took is something that I intellectually know, but I can understand how like viscerally, when you're in the heat of the moment, it's hard to practice, which is there's a difference between having the best nine-year-old travel basketball team and developing good basketball players. And the example that he gave is if you want to win the nine-year-old basketball state championship, you play a two-three zone because none of the kids have the muscles to consistently make good threes or throw passes more than 10 feet. So you really can't break a zone, but that is going to change quite a bit when you're in middle school or high school. So JJ Reddick said he demands that his team plays man-to-man defense, even though everyone else is playing the zone. And um, I think that that is a really astute observation.
2: As someone who's been dragged to way too many nine, eight, nine-year-old games, um, as my wife was a teacher and would go to these soccer and football and basketball games, you just don't care about winning. Because if you do, you're going to end up like so many, I'm not, I'm not naming names, but so many of these crazy-ass parents who I watched yell at referees of this like nine-year-old game. I had parents who came up to me and asked if they could, I could work with their kid on getting faster. So they'd be a better flag football coach. Once they found out that I coached track and I'm just sitting there like, Oh my God, what is going on here? So, you know, the kids are, the
0: kids are crazy competitive though. So uh, our team has, our team has a rule that we don't keep score. So they'll be like, what's like Theo, my son will come up and during a a timeout, he'll be like, what's the score, dad? And I'm like, no idea. And then Yates is like,
2: it's 12 to 14. But that's the point. Like the kids can be competitive. It just can't be the parents. Like the parents can't be competitive. The kids, when it's them, have at it. Like it's no different than old school Sandlot baseball. You're playing until you die out there. Um, have at it, but if the parents are driving that ship and overly competitive, man, it 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 goes downhill quick. So, actually, I was talking to a to someone who was, you know, a world class level athlete who is now getting into coaching and and talking about the parents. This is a, a you know a tangent we could go on forever, but she's like, man, they have young kids, so like it makes me realize that when my kids get like this age, like just shut up and be on the sidelines. Don't say anything. Like don't, don't tell the coach he or she needs to do a better job of X, Y, and Z. Just like shut up and cheer. And that's it. So that's, that's my recommendation for youth parents.
0: My co-coach had to step out of the gym for five minutes, two weeks ago in a game because he got a little too hot. Um, so (laughs) there we have it.
1: Good for him. Self-awareness knows who he is and he's being that. All right, big news here for Farewell. We have our first voicemail submitted question. Comes from Casey from Chicago. Long time fan of the Growth Equation. Big fan of your guys' books. So Casey brought up a conundrum situation that I know I have often faced. And he basically says, if I have a day planned, things I want to get done that day. And it goes completely off the rails. And this could be because of interruptions, maybe you're working and you had stuff you want to do, but you get emails from your boss, you got to do something else. Maybe you just lack the motivation to do it. Maybe you didn't sleep the night before, whatever it is. And your plan of action is thrown off and you get to the end of the day, say it's five or six. Is it better to will yourself through all the things you missed or some of them and then wake up tomorrow, maybe a little bit zapped of energy, maybe a little bit zapped of spirit, but where you want it to be. Or is it better to just say, today was a wash and let me restart tomorrow? My instant response is to go to sleep and start fresh. I feel like that is kind of the obvious answer. But I've also had days where I've taken that approach. And the next day, same <laughs> thing happens. And now you're two days behind. So for me, that's sort of the one caveat is like, I think the obvious answer is like in an ideal world. It's like, start over, start with a, start with a fresh, you know, renewed spirit. But I don't know, that can also set you back.
0: I think that the short answer is it depends. So if you're working against a deadline or there's a timeliness component to what you're doing, then maybe you actually need to get the work in at 6 p.m. and say, hey, the day was a wash, but I'm someone that can pull this off this evening. And uh, you know, one night of sleep that's not great is not going to hurt anybody. If it's not a timely situation then I do think that calling it and giving yourself permission to have an off day and then starting up the next morning makes the most sense, knowing that um, you've got some inertia working against you when you wake up and that it might require a little bit more activation energy to um, to just get started. And then the third option that can work for a lot of people is just get one small win at night. So if you had four things that you wanted to do and all four got away from you, You don't have to do all four that evening, but pick one. It's kind of like getting to the free throw line of a basketball game when you're not shooting well and you just see the ball go through the net and now suddenly you're back in the flow because you see the ball go through the net. So do the equivalent of that. See the ball go through the net. So pick one thing, work from six to seven, not six to 10, and then pick up the next morning. I think that's that's how I'd approach it.
2: I'm going to answer this in athletic context, not surprisingly, but if I think of it as running, if it's one day during the week where I say, "Hey, I'm going to push it and start over tomorrow, so that I can get a better quality workout in tomorrow," great. But if that starts to become two days during the week, then I did that, then I I should probably will myself through to get something in, right? Um, again, that's going to vary depending on the person. For some, that'll be three days, some two days, some one days, whatever it is, your context. Um, The other part, the other strategy that I think works well, especially in athletic context is when life gets busy, lower your bar. You know, if you had an hour run scheduled, go for 30 minutes. Feel like you get something in, you check that box, you keep that momentum going. That 30 minutes gives you often a little recovery. And then you say, hey, tomorrow, like I'm going to feel better so I can get get something really good or quality in or longer in or w- more intense, whatever it is. Um, so that's, that's how I would kind of frame it as well as like the context depends on the situation. And sometimes you're going to have to kind of will your way through. Sometimes you're going to have to lower the bar. Sometimes you're going to say, Hey, reset, forget about it, move on, come back and get them the next day.
1: Yeah. You guys both said in there, this Phrases coming to mind, something rather than nothing, right? And Brad, you sort of said at night, if you can't do four things, do one. And Steve, you're saying if you can't get an hour run, get your 20-minute, 30-minute run. Or maybe you do five minutes of push-ups, you know, but something rather than nothing.
0: And here's how this often happens in a traditional work context. You've got these things that you want to do during the day, and stuff comes up can be external. So you get called into a meeting or there's a phone call that you have to take or a client's not happy with you or someone on your team needs help. can also be internal. You just get sucked in the vortex of Twitter or Instagram or uh, reading the Atlantic magazine, whatever it is, you have a distracted day. So you get home from work and you feel really fatigued because you had this whole day, but you also feel like you didn't get anything done. You didn't do any meaningful work. And that's a really crappy feeling. And this is why it's so important in a knowledge work setting to carve out time to do deep focus work. And unless there is a true four alarm fire emergency, protect that time. Because otherwise stuff's always gonna come up. Something that I see a lot in my executive clients is you get into this cycle of wanting to do deep work, but you never can because there's always something urgent that comes up. And then at the end of the day, you feel like you didn't really do anything and you start to resent your job and you start to resent the people around you and it just snowballs. And the way around that isn't to work from 7 to 10 p.m. It's to put blocks of time on your calendar for meaningful work and stick to them.
1: Brad, one thing you said in your answer is if you do go to bed and you the next morning are working against inertia, you need to sort of be mindful about your activation energy. Can you say more about that or some strategies that people can think about there to what that means and how they can think about having some of that activation energy? Activation energy simply just means get going.
0: And sometimes you don't need much. You're motivated, you're inspired, everything's clicking, you're in a rhythm. And you just, when you're in a rhythm, the momentum carries you. But other times, uh, you're not in a rhythm and you're not motivated. And if you had four things you wanted to do and you got zero out of four done, you could wake up the next morning and be really overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, I'm behind. I have these four things from yesterday. I don't really want to get started. What do I do? And the answer is nothing. You just get started. And it's just knowing that there might be some more like psychological friction in the moment that you have between waking up and getting started than there would be if everything is clicking. And not to freak out, not to judge yourself, not to try to watch a David Goggins hype speech to get inspired, just simply say, yeah, of course I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed because I'm behind, uh, but I have the faith that if I just get going, I'll slowly work my way back. And as you get older, everything just takes more activation energy. That's the reward for staying in this life is things take more activation
1: energy. Especially if you went too hard on the leg press and the leg extension. All right, Casey, I hope uh, you found that helpful. I hope anyone listening find that, found that helpful. Thank you for the, the thoughtful question. Again, guys, we have a voicemail. You can speak directly to us. Um, I never recorded a voicemail, so I actually don't know what, what the actual recording you hear when you call is. But if you call 646-893-9503, 646-893-9503, you can submit a question and we might answer it here. So, please call. Ask us a question. We'd love to hear from you guys. And if you have any other feedback or ideas, you can also email me, clay.growtheq at gmail.com. And yeah, that's it for today. hope you enjoyed this. hope you got some lessons on coaching and leadership. Hopefully, Dan Campbell is not out of the playoffs by the time you hear this, but I think the lessons on his philosophy and his approach to excellence still applies regardless. We will talk to you guys soon. As always, farewell.